Welcome everyone to Legal Tech Week for May 28th, 2021. I am Bob Ambrogi. Uh, I am the author of the blog Law Sites and host of this podcast where we talk about the week's top stories in legal tech and innovation. I always say the week's top stories, but it's kind of more the stories that most interested us, I think. Uh, they're not necessarily the biggest stories of the week, although often they are, but uh, the stories that struck our fancy, I think. Uh, some of our usual cast of characters are here today, and, uh, and Jeff Brand is again joining us as a guest. So let's do a quick uh, go around and uh, introduce ourselves. Uh, Jeff, you can kick us off. Sure. So I am Jeff Brandt. Uh, my day job is the Chief Information Officer at Jackson Kelly, uh, Charleston-based uh, law firm. I am also the uh, editor of the Pinhawk Law Technology Digest. Happy to have, be back again. Thank you all. Thanks. Uh, Steve Embry, how about you? Uh, hi, Steve Embry. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, which is about legal innovation and legal technology. And prior to that, I practiced law for a good number of years. I won't say how many, but uh, probably more than anyone else on the call. And Nikki Black. I think it's turned into a competition. I'm, I'm probably not gonna win that one, but <laughs> I'm Nikki Black. I'm the um, legal technology evangelist with my case. And <clears throat> I write legal tech columns for ABA Journal Above the Law, the Daily Record. And I also write regularly for the My Case blog. And I think I know how long Steve's been in practice. He said it before, but I'm gonna hold that in my back pocket. At least 10 years. It's, it's not something I'm bragging about, by the way. <laughs> it just it just took me a long time to figure out there was a better way to live my life. Uh, Caroline, how about you? Hey, everyone. Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider. That's my day job as well. <laughs> uh, recovering litigator. Uh, and I didn't practice all that long. <laughs> all right. And uh, Molly? Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist based in the Chicago area and producer of the show Legal Talk Today for the Legal Talk Network and a former editor and publisher of the ABA Journal. Last but not least, Joe. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the podcast Thinking Like a Lawyer. And I am looking forward to uh, the unofficial beginning of summer with a 55 degree day tomorrow. So, uh, things didn't quite work out for uh, the weather up here. Yeah, we've got three days of rain and cold weather coming up uh, in New England here. So it's gonna be a great Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I'm gonna exercise a moderator prerogative and kick it off uh, with talking a little bit about this, this Justin Kahn mea culpa. I don't know if any of you got a chance to either watch his video or read about it, uh, but it's, it's really quite a thing to see. I mean, I feel like it's, uh, in some ways, the, the worst of what we imagine a Silicon Valley story to be uh, in this world. Uh, you know, Khan is is the guy famously who founded Twitch, sold it to Amazon for basically a billion dollars, uh, and then uh, announced he was going to start a company called Atrium that was going to revolutionize the delivery of legal services. Uh, he was able to raise $75 million from some really big name uh, investors in Silicon Valley. Uh, remarkably, if, if you listen to his, uh, he, he posted this, so he posted this video YouTube, uh, on YouTube this week, basically uh, 
admitting that he he messed up big time with, with atrium and and uh, uh, essentially uh, it was his mea culpa. Uh, but some of the interesting things he said in this video, uh, one was that he was able to raise his first $10 million before he really even had an idea based on a 10 slide pitch deck. Uh, and that in fact, he never really even had the idea very clearly formulated when they launched the company. Uh, he says, he said that we were basically gonna just had took the approach of going after getting customers and then we would build the product once we got the customers. Uh, he talks about the fact that uh, he wasn't really all that interested in legal tech or legal technology, uh, but he really just wanted to, he was sort of amazed, you know, mesmerized by the idea of doing something nobody else had been able to do and he wanted to kind of pursue it. Uh, and he, um, he he uh, he continues to broach this idea, which which I've written about before, and I'm sure others have before, that that he kind of invented this idea of this dual entity structure. I mean, the whole idea of Atrium was there was going to be these sort of two companies. There's going to be the law firm delivering legal services, and then there was going to be the tech company uh, that was going to be kind of supporting it all and supporting the business side of it. AKA uh, Clearspire. AKA Clearspire, exactly. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I wrote a column on Above the Law right after, not long after uh, Atrium launched, basically saying this is, you know, deja vu all over again. Uh, uh, and yet, even in this video, he maintains that it was, uh, he, he called it a, a regulatory hack that I invented, uh, which, uh, well, you didn't, Justin. So I, I just thought it was fascinating. There's a story about it. He did this whole long sort of Twitter thread about it. And most tellingly, he posted this video on YouTube, uh, about a 20 minute conversation of him kind of sitting on the floor by his bed, uh, reminiscing about uh, how he started this and where his failures were. Uh, if you haven't watched it, uh, you know, I, it's it's just a lesson in, I don't know, the worst of legal tech, I guess. I wonder, I wonder, if, he was in, I wonder if he was inspired by J.J. Abrams, who, uh, for those of you who have been following pop culture news, went out this week and gave a long mea culpa, culpa about the Star Wars movies, saying, I think it probably would have been better if we'd had a plan before we started them. <laughs> uh, it seems as though it's the exact same, uh, same uh, apology. I wonder if uh, he saw that and thought that it was the new trend. He did that apology first, right? I mean, that, uh, yeah, I can't remember who went first. Yeah, That's the whole problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you watch Justice, he invented the apology. Pretty yeah. produced. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty produced. It looked like it was it was supposed to sort of look off the cuff. You can see the editing cuts and all that in it, so you can tell it was kind of produced and planned. I think, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, or so the natrium. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> when he says about growing, one of the things, one of the big issues was that they grew too fast because obviously we kind of looked. So not quite knowing what on earth to make of this thing you know and it was never I mean I the idea is not Justin's and a good, you know potentially a workable idea but obviously it grew massively he says that was one of the problems but then what I found funny was um he was saying despite the problems um Atrium trudged on growing in size and raising 65 million dollars <laughs> it's, like, it's like you know I mean, that you know, what point do you go? Well, no, maybe we don't shouldn't raise sixty five million dollars. I don't know. Right, and and he talked about the growth growing fast, but also losing customers as quickly as they were growing. Mm. He said it was basically a leaky. He described this a leaky bucket. Those were his words. They'd come in, but they'd go out just as quickly. Well, 
I think it's so interesting about this. And I don't know Justin Kahn and I didn't watch the video, so I'm not talking about him specifically. But when it comes to startup culture and investors, there's very much a bro culture. And it's sort of this like sense, the sense of bravado and cool ideas. And when you know men come in with these cool ideas and these slide decks that kind of hit those trigger points that Silicon Valley thinks is cool and it should work even though it probably hasn't, hasn't worked in the past, but maybe it'll work this time. They just throw money at some of these people. And then you have other people, oftentimes women and people of color who have these really good ideas and these, uh, and they just can't even get funded and they go much more slowly. Granted, he's a person of color, but <laughs> so, so uh, but just generally speaking, there's like this bro culture where you sort of, uh, and, and this idea of what's cool and shiny and that Silicon Valley thinks is cool and shiny, even though it may or may not work in the real world, especially in the legal tech space. And what, you got a problem with bro culture? What's wrong with that? <laughs> well, and it's also, I also think, and I don't, I don't know this guy at all. I've never met him and I haven't even seen the video. So it's not about him. But I think the people that tend towards narcissism are super charismatic and really good sellers. And so sometimes you have these people that have this front that seems like they're super awesome and they're so smart. And they know what they're talking about, but they're really just, it's a bunch of hot air. And they actually haven't, just as he had apparently admitted in his, this video, actually thought anything through. And it, do they just sell a good pitch? And, there's, and then they just drop the ball and expect someone else to run it for them. And like I said, I'm not talking about him specifically, but I feel like I've seen this happen over and over in our space and elsewhere. Well, it's, it's the classic story of WeWork. If you read you know, the, the book about the founder of WeWork, it's almost, almost exactly the same. I mean, he was just blah, 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 blah. And yeah. he was charismatic enough where people just believed him. And nobody really said, well, exactly what, what is it you're selling now? What, what is it again? I'll have to go back over my yeah. slide decks. I know I have some slide decks, you know, 10, 10, 10 page More than slide 10 decks that, that could be worth half that maybe. <laughs> nothing else, you could sell them as NFTs or something. <laughs> I, I think there was also an arrogance. I remember at the time thinking, when the, the way that the language was about you know well everybody everyone everyone that's gone before is a bit crap and legal services needs to be disrupted and you know and it's all like we're gonna we're gonna work our magic and you know it was very it was very sort of a lot of bravado i, I totally agree yeah. with your point nikki about as well about the bro culture but um and i just think that any any of us who have worked in this industry a long time know that that's just not realistic there's a reason why you know it's so it takes a long time to change and there's a, some things that you know lawyers do really well you know and there's some things that need to be modernized but actually you don't do it usually by coming in and going ah oh, everything you do is crap <laughs> yeah it's, it's the it's the revolutionary talk i mean i've i've uh, pointed out a couple articles now in, in binhock that uh, you know the the whole concept of this is going to revolutionize this is going to it's like i've been working in legal now for 35 36 years it's a very thick bubble you just don't come in and revolutionize. There's a reason uh, why things move slowly in, in legal. And it amazes me, to Nikki's point, it amazes me how people think that it's going to come in and with you know, 10, 10 or even 20 page uh, slide decks uh, that you can come in and, and uh, just make that change in the, in the market so easily, the legal market in particular, so easily. Amazes yeah. me. Yeah. I feel, I feel like we should, I should, or at least I should at least give him some credit for, you know, 
coming forward and doing this mea culpa. I mean, it's, I, I, it was, a, it's in a, way, a lot of ways, a very honest video. And, and he, he does really admit that he, he screwed up in a number of ways. And one of them is kind of exactly what you're talking about, that he's, he's saying, I was just really good at marketing and, and we were getting customers because I was good at marketing and people knew me because I had sold my business for a billion dollars. And, you know, it was the shiny new thing and people were, were kind of mesmerized by it. And uh, that just wasn't a product that wasn't enough to, to go with. So, so I, I've been t attending the Bucerius lecture series, and this is like the, the opposite of the founder story. <laughs> you know where the founders are really focused on product development and you know and the struggle is you know how much do you fine tune and build a product before or as you're raising money and it's like there didn't seem to be any of that product development happening yeah well uh there is a there's a uh, a segue here because uh the the founder of clear aspire was was mark cohen and uh, mark cohen wrote something uh that Jeff uh, was talking about uh, wanting to talk about this week. So you want to? Uh... Sure. In fact, I, I worked with Mark and Bryce at uh, ClearSpire. In fact, that's the only, uh, I guess, claim to fame I can say is that my name is on one of the patents that- uh, I forgot that you worked at ClearSpire. ClearSpire. Yeah. So uh, uh, what I shot to Bob was this whole concept of non-lawyer, right? And so uh, Mark's article was all about law as a team sport and, uh, you know, uh, whether you're going to call it the uh, allied professionals or whatever. I mean, I, I wrote, I think it was first articles I ever wrote were back in 2013, you know, name shame. We're not lawyers, but we are professionals. My degree is computer science and mathematics. Uh, you know, and, and my very first job out of college was uh, working for a gentleman named Ron Rust, Rust Consulting, complex litigation support before we even called it uh, e-discovery work. Uh, and so I've worked with lawyers all my professional career. Uh, and I know it's a cultural thing. And live to tell about it. Yeah, and live to tell about it. So, so far, anyway. Um, <laughs> and able to raise five kids on it. So it, it's uh, doing something for me. Um, but, you know, there are, every firm is different. I, I get that. It's all a spectrum. I've been part of firms where, you know, as the uh, C-level information manager, uh, you know, you're not allowed in the executive committee meetings unless your presence is requested. I've worked in other cultures uh, where the executive committee meets together with the C-suite every two weeks uh, and shares information, you know, whether it's information sharing or information hoarding kind of culture. Uh, but I really think that we got to come up with something other than non-lawyer. If you, I googled non-lawyer uh, and it came up with, um, what is it here, uh, 840,000 articles in 0.97 seconds. Yeah, Merriam-Webster online dictionary defines non-lawyer as you would expect as somebody who's not a lawyer. Uh, yeah, ABA rule 5.3 includes uh, non-lawyer and responsibilities regarding non-lawyer assistance. Uh, just, I, I go back and forth between it is in one way a very descriptive term and in other ways, I guess, partly on how it's used as it gets used as a pejorative. I've, I've, I've talked here, I, I think I talked just a couple of weeks ago here on the fact that K&L Gates has adopted this phrase, allied professionals, and I think some other firms have picked that up as well. Uh, you know, that works pretty well. It doesn't work in all circumstances, yeah. and it's not descriptive entirely, but neither is non-lawyer. So, uh, um, you know. 
Well, and I believe uh, Mark uses that term as well, allied professionals in his article. And you never hear, I, I never really thought about that until now, but you never hear for the other professions, non-accountant and non-doctor. Like you don't hear anyone say that. So it is a very odd term. It's yeah. dismissive. It's, I think it's dismissive, isn't it? Right. It, it? Yeah, by, by its nature, it's, it's um, and, I, and I think it's so outdated. You know, I think that that now, you know, with the, that, that finally there's so much recognition of all of the services needing to come into play in order to, to sort of, for everything to sing. Um, I sound a bit naive saying that, <laughs> ever the optimist. Um, you know, I think now really is the time to re-examine. Um, and, and so in the UK, you can have non-lawyers, non as I'm now going to call them, become partners. Um, and, you know, we've opened it up completely. And I just think that, yeah, calling everyone non-lawyers is, is, is yeah, it's, it's a very out of date. My, my sort current of call everybody is, I think it's really sort of it's insulting. You know, I uh, I think I have mentioned before I, when I was when I was practicing, I actually talked to our COO at the firm where I was about it, and asked asked her about what she thought. Um, and her response was interesting. You know, she said, "Well, I don't really want to be referred to as a non anything," <laughs> which you know, when you think about it, really sort of sort of kind of says it all. I mean, it is thinking of you as a non as a other. You're not part of the clan. You're another. You're a non-person, and I, I've so I I have railed against the term for for some time. Uh, ever since you told me that, actually. Well, it's it, it's it goes as deep as business cards. I can remember the very first business cards I ever got, um, uh, being told that you know I had to make sure that my title was on my business card so that I would not be mistaken for a lawyer. That, it, you know, that basically my business card was proof that I was a non-lawyer uh, and therefore um, whatever, <laughs> whatever that carries with it. And that, and that brings with it cultural. Well, if, it makes you, if it makes you feel, I'm sorry. No, no, you guys. Uh, I was just gonna tell Jeffrey, if it, if it makes him feel any better when the second law firm I went to work for as a young associate, I tiptoed into the senior partner's office and asked him if I could have some business cards and his response was what the hell are you going to do with business cards <laughs> 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 which i have to admit he, he did have kind of a point at the time but <laughs> i must admit, i've never done anything with business cards apart from where they sit on my desk gathering dogs um i was just gonna say that culturally you know this idea of you know but jeff to your point about you had to be marked out as a non-lawyer for culturally for the, for the for the lawyers you know perhaps the young lawyers coming up and learning how to interact with other people I think that also isn't helpful in terms of creating a culture where they're working very much as a team you know we should there should be all sorts of people of all different disciplines working together um and and I think that the culture is sort of it's it could probably goes it's deeper than just the business card isn't it you're right I'm, and I'm there's I'm sorry go ahead no, well, who's using non-lawyer anymore anyway? I'm just curious, like who's saying it? Is it, is it the lawyers who are still being dismissive of alternative legal services or multidisciplinary approaches? It's kind of a lazy term for journalists because it's just like a throwaway category to say these people were not who don't have JDs or aren't licensed, now licensed professionals, if you- I, um, I think it was on lawyer. the decline a bit. Uh, but whether it's lazy journalism or whatever, I think uh, Utah Sandbox, uh, every article that now talks about any uh, uh, adventure, adventure, any 
uh, venture in Utah uh, typically comes with a with a non-lawyer uh, tag on it. Uh, like I said, well, it's, it's the, the model rules thing. use the word. I mean, the, the yes, phrase the is right in the model yes. rules. That's part of the problem. But part of the problem is when, when you're talking about the ownership issue, you can't say now legal professionals can invest in law firms because that doesn't that's not descriptive. It's it's more descriptive. To say now, you know, people who are not lawyers are, can invest in law firms and, and however you want to phrase that. But you do have to distinguish between lawyers and those who are not lawyers in some way. I think also legal professional to me um, to me, that could be personally sounds could be confusing, you know, because what you're talking about, if you're talking about someone in IT or you're talking about someone in BD or whatever, wherever they might be, calling them a legal professional to me might be confusing because you might be thinking that they are something different to what they actually are. It could be it's yeah. quite it's very generic, isn't it? Well, the, it, you know, we there was the medical uh, example used earlier, like, well, we don't do non-doctors. And in a sense, it's because we have other terms for non-doctors, like they can be nurses or physician's assistants or chiropractors. Whatever we use to be non-doctor, we have that out there. And it, we just don't have terms for all the different supporting roles as legal professionals and in in some ways, they they kind of defy good description. Like paralegal is a thing you can say uh, that's a paralegal, but a lot of the more sophisticated uh, legal support jobs, there's not like a good catch-all for them. Well, that's true. You've got a lot of specialization. The the bigger firms you've got, you've got the whole uh, knowledge team, you've got the whole pricing team, you've got the whole business development team, uh, you've got IT teams that are on-prem and cloud-based. You've got all kinds of different things, but like I said, I, I go back and forth between the fact that it is unfortunately a very descriptive term. Uh, it's just sometimes the way it gets used, you know, it's like, okay, well, okay, quit cursing at me and calling me a non-lawyer. Try to, try to do your work without me. <laughs> There's an interesting comment, um, Rebecca, said, I'm an attorney with an active license, but on the staff side at my firm, and I'm often referred to as a non-lawyer within the firm. I, I feel like that says a lot. That's really like this hierarchical um, partners, non-equity partners, associates, you know, paralegal. And then because she doesn't, if she has a role that somehow doesn't fit into that, they call her a non-lawyer, you know, like um, because it's not a, maybe because she's not practicing law, but I, I find that a little offensive. The other thing that this sort of brings up with sort of what she said that I think is interesting is um, women who have law degrees that stop practicing, um, myself included, are a little reluctant to give up the term lawyer as part of your title, whereas men will just say former lawyer, non-practicing lawyer. But when you're a woman and you have, or women will put ESQ after the names, men don't do that. You lose cred and a sense of professionalism and a sense of someone who actually knows something when you go out into the real world, if you lose that, um, both professionally and personally. And so I think women feel like we've earned it, whereas men are a little bit more like, I still, I still have street cred just in a different place. And so I think that, that the fact that she's called a non-lawyer, I would suggest that might be um, a little bit of a gender issue too. I could be wrong, yeah. but. Well yeah, another area in which there is uh, a lack of equity uh, in law firms is in the diversity arena. And Steve, you've you've got a report this week on a on a new survey uh, relating to diversity in law firms. You want to talk to that? Yeah, sure. It, it frankly is, was kind of a depressing sort of article in a lot of ways. Um, Patrick Smith wrote it, um, and he referred to a survey of twenty diversity and inclusion 
professionals. Um, I won't use the non-word, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I don't know, he didn't reveal how many people actually responded. He said several responded, but but their comments were, were, uh, were insightful in a way. I mean, they, they talked about the sort of uh, uh, death last summer, uh, but the, the sort of the notion was that it was really, uh, to use a, an old Texas saying, uh, all hat, no cattle. Um, a lot of talk, but when, when these people were asked what they were actually accomplishing or able to accomplish in their firms, it was, it was pretty, pretty poor for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, history, um, unconscious bias, uh, not enough mentoring, uh, failure to engage women and minorities, a lack of accountability, all these things they, they, they referenced um, as problems that, that imp have impeded real progress. And, you know, when you look at the statistics, there, there isn't a lot of progress um, in our profession uh, in this arena. And, and some of them even questioned whether senior leadership and senior partners in the firm really wanted these kinds of initiatives. Uh, to go forward and, and proceed. And, um, you know, I, I, I also saw another uh, reference today to an article in the ABA journal uh, about uh, the Florida Supreme Court uh, uh, ruling that, that will not allow lawyers to claim CLE credit in Florida for if they attend a program where there are diversity uh, and minority and women uh, quotas, if you will, on speakers. and. You think about, you know, that that hand in hand with with Patrick Smith's article. I mean, it, it sets a terrible example for for many people in law firms to say, well, yeah, now look, here's some support. We don't need to do all this with the Supreme Court in Florida. And so I just, uh, you know, again, reading it, you know, it's hard to hard to really know how many responded and how valid the survey was. Uh, he did say it it was in various to, to professionals in various locations, various size firms, although I'm sure mostly bigger firms because you know you would have to be of a certain size to to actually have people engaged in those roles, uh, at least formally that is. Uh, but it was a, to me it was a sad commentary that we, we still don't seem to be making progress. We still don't seem as a profession to be to be fully recognizing the potential contribution of women and uh, diverse, people in the legal in the legal profession so i was as i say i was i was a little depressed in reading it it'd be really interesting to see with the pandemic and working from home whether that has a positive impact because although we had a bit of a depressing conversation about this either on clubhouse or last week here where you know we, employers are not being perhaps you know as, as honourable as we would hope they would be in, in, in allowing people to work more flexibly going forward. But certainly I would hope that now we've sort of, I think for, I think people will be putting their feet down. And Steve, I think we were talking about this on Clubhouse, weren't we? And someone said that that they think that, for, because obviously for, for women um, and perhaps also diversity in terms of, you can if you're working from home, perhaps the geographical reach can be different. There's all sorts of factors where it might be working remotely a lot of the time might be play to better diversity. Um, I really hope that that will be the case. I hope that there'll be much more 
um, there'll be that firms or corporates will be much more conscious of the potential for that in terms of women women being able to juggle with having children and picking you know I think that it will enable people to do more juggling but I mean so, and then just one other point I've spoke to a client um, there's been a few more client initiatives one I spoke to one of the big tech companies a legal ops person and they they really seem to be putting it much more into their terms you know um, to, and I mean, I'd see, Steve, I, I get you, but in terms of the stats, it just doesn't really seem to, nothing seems to be working, but Nokia and another one, they put DNI in their terms in terms of the way that they um, instruct lawyers. I know Microsoft does, and, and you kind of hope that some, at some point you'll start to see some results, right? Yeah, I've said for a long time that, that it's really, for many law firms, it's going to have to be the, the clients that, that put their, their yeah. feet down and say, and, and to do that, they're going to have to do uh, um, what Tony West, who's the general counsel of, of Uber, described in his uh, legal, I think it was Legal Week talk, about how much into the into the, the, the bowels of the law firm management side, clients will have to really get to inform themselves whether there is really diversity going on or whether, again, it's it's uh, all hat, no cattle concept. Um, such things as compensation and credits and management and who's on what committees. And you know, that's, a, that's a touchy topic for lots of law firms, understandably, but you know, um, that, that may be what it takes. I don't know. Steve, not to make light of the subject because it is a very serious one, but I wouldn't necessarily take a lot of stock in Florida Supreme Court and Florida Bar. That's an odd, group down there. I mean, Florida Supreme Court just uh, confirmed the state bars turning off of the electric dog fence for lawyers. I mean, it's a, the, the things that they're focusing on is, like I said, don't, don't necessarily take Florida as the uh, case test for the rest of the United States. Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's a fair point considering Florida just passed, what is it, the social moderation law or something like that, where they're yeah like i do think we still have the first amendment even in florida maybe i don't know but, but well, I, a fair point jeffrey maybe <laughs> maybe uh, yeah, yeah well maybe, maybe yeah <laughs> i actually wrote about that i'll put that in the thing about whether there's a first amendment in florida or <laughs> no just about the uh, about that new law um yeah just yeah but the other issue oh. With diversity Again, to, too, to is quote... that? Right, Nikki. Well, is that they can put people in who are diverse in positions that have no power? And Steve alluded, alluded to this, but until you can't change people's attitudes, you can't change their their stereotypes and their prejudices. And if you have people at the top of a firm. And I, if I, I hesitate to use the word if, because I think it's probably more correct to say when you have people at the top of a firm that are racist or sexist and have stereotypes, even if they put people in positions of power, they may not actually allow them to do anything that's right. actually impactful in that position. And you can't, that's one of the most frustrating things about sexism and racism is you can't change how people think it's, or you can, but it's very, very difficult. And I feel like you have to keep relying on the younger generations and keep hoping that they're going to be a little better than the generation before them. But that sure is a slow process. Well, 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 the slow it's, a, it's a fact that in most law firms, origination credit is, is the power, right? I mean, that's, that's how people get in senior leadership. That's how they, in many law firms, they become on the executive committee. And in many law, law firms become managing partners. It's, it's origination credit. And 
there's all sorts of rules and procedures for determining that. And sadly, in many cases, that favors the status quo, which is, you know, white, old white men. Um, but my point is, even so, if they put people in positions of power and let them leapfrog over the obstacles they put in front of them, they may not actually give them the tools that they would normally give people, just like how they came up with non-equity partners, right? Where you get paid less, yeah. no, you're that's not right. worth anything, and you don't have any advancement options. And it's almost always women that are in that position. Um, right. And they have all these reasons why they're there that are because of their choices. But at the end of the day, even if they leapfrog people that are people of color above um, or that are diverse above the all those different hurdles, they're still going to reduce their ability to actually have power or do things that are to earn yeah, profit it, or whatever. It's, it's, it's very slow, yeah. I, I'll just say there's no simple solution to systemic issues like this. So really the best approaches require uh, for a systemic problem require a systemic solution so that you know it's not one single thing, one single person, one single set of people or a new pool of people that's going to make a change. It's It's it requires a business priority and that goes through the ranks, through the entire operation for it to be effective. And, and with accountability and metrics, measuring progress and owning up to failures. And I, I'm just, so far I've not seen a whole lot of that, a lot of talk, a lot of demand. We know, I've, Rick Palmore has been talking about this and showing um, folks how to do it for ages and not really seeing, um, seeing uh, people step up or leaders, companies and firms step up and make it happen. And I, the, I, I keep focusing on this slow point that, uh, that Nikki brought up because I think it, it's, lawyers are very results oriented and we expect things to change and they should probably change faster, but there is also something to be said for uh, moving somebody into an income partner role is not uh, actually a good place for advancing leadership. But I mean, I'll, I'll say from when I was a pup lawyer, like there were special counsel at my firm who were women or people of color that I worked with. And I was like, what's the difference between them and partners? Like the fact that I interacted with them in a mentorish sort of role meant that I walked away from that as the young one thinking, well, this, this person should clearly get more credit. Um, and that means that if I were in charge of a firm, not that that would ever happen at this point, but, or any point, frankly, uh, but if I were in charge of a firm, that's something that's in the back of my head. And you, you say like relying on the youth, but part of relying on the youth is they have to see possibilities and then integrate that into their schema of how the world works. And so, it's not it's not the ideal solution because something should be faster, but it's still an important step, which goes to Molly's point. I mean, I think the only way something will happen faster is if somebody does something really radical or extreme. Uh, and, you know, that keeps bringing me back to this Bradley Gaten story at Coke, where, I, you know, he he said, look, we, we essentially need to institute quotas is what it came down to. I mean, we, we need to say we need to take radical action to improve the diversity uh, of our outside council. Uh, and how long did he last at the job? Two months or something like that? Um, yeah, but Microsoft so. and Intel, that's exactly what they've done. And that, you know, I think that someone made the point about how do you, how, do, how deep do they have to dive in? But actually, 
if you if you're you can monitor the teams that are working directly with you quite easily and so they they put in quotas in terms of that it must be this you know this they they insist on whatever percentage diversity that and that's quite easy to monitor right because they, they're working directly with these people and and i i don't know how strict they are if they, if they fall short saying i guess that's where the crunch is just like with children giving them an ultimatum and then they know that you're not gonna actually go through with the ultimatum so i suppose it depends on whether they really do whether it's just in the would they just use that language and then they don't actually put it i don't i don't know but that seems to me to be quite an effective way to do it yeah, we should probably move on to uh, another story because we're moving through the time here. But uh, can we just give a shout out to Greg Lambert, who's who was on Twitter? Bob, he's driving. Is he here with his mother? Is he? Yeah, you, Greg, you driving <laughs> with your mom? <laughs> Hi, mom. I love it. You know, the family that listens to Legal Tech together stays together. I think, as, as Nikki has proven too. Um, but um, I guess related to this, related to related in very broad terms to diversity in law firms, uh, Nikki, the, the, you had a story this week that that talks about how uh, different people, people of different genders, different ages, different positions within law firms have a very different perspective on uh, getting back to the office. Right. And I love all these studies that are coming up because the this fascinates me. You know, we've never had a pandemic. We've never had this rapid shift to remote work. And is it really? Oh, you don't remember the 1912 legal? pandemic or whatever? No, I, I don't. Zoom wasn't I Zoom wasn't as robust enough. then. <laughs> we were on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, but it's so interesting. It, you know, is it going to change legal? Is it going to change the workplace and businesses and how they do business in general? Um, it's hard. It's really we don't know that yet. But it's very interesting to see what the employees want. And that's what this study, it was Law 360. And I think it wasn't a law firm that did this uh, issue, this study, and it was just focused on <clears throat> what the different, um, what employees think about coming back to law firms, uh, primarily lawyers, I think is what it focused on and um, how those um, responses changed when you broke it down by age, generation and gender, and also partner or associate or of counsel. <clears throat> and um, I believe it was a, overall about half of the people surveyed, a little under half, wanted to work remote in some capacity upon their return. But um, when you broke it down, <clears throat> the oldest people and the partners, which seems that, you know, goes hand in hand, um, did not really, really wanted to get right back into the office um, full time and were the least psyched about this whole hybrid concept um, or anybody else working hybrid. And then when you got to associates and uh, of counsel, they were less interested, and obviously they're younger as well. So they were much less interested in um, returning full time in the office. We're more interested in hybrid options, and generationally, again, that goes with the age. But the boomers were the most interested in coming back, and as you went down through the generations, much more less interested in coming back to the office and full-time. Then it was interesting to see what trigger points different people had, whether it was the firm mandates it, the government says it's okay, vaccination rates. And then when it came to women versus men, um, and in some ways I feel like it really should have been caregiver, <laughs> somehow split not just by women versus men, but also possibly who has care more caregiving responsibilities. It's not always just the women, but when they did women versus men, women were more likely to want to have more flexible hybrid schedules. And it's 
was because of all of the articles that you've seen <clears throat> where women have been burdened with the childcare issues more than the men, even when working remotely. So even when both um, partners were remote, um, the women ended up overseeing more of the schooling and dealing with the other issues related to children and maintaining a household, which takes a lot of time as well um, compared to the men. And so they were more likely to want these hybrid schedules. Um, I had, I wrote an article for Above the Law, one on the My Case blog, and I actually wrote one for the Daily Record too. And I um, sliced and diced different data from this report in each article, but it was really interesting. And I'll, I'll post links. The Daily Record's behind a paywall, which is why I didn't include it. And I haven't republished it to my blog yet, but the other two were not behind paywalls. So I'll share them if they haven't already been shared in the chat. Yeah, that's really interesting. So Steve, Steve and I also talked about this on Clubhouse about um, people, some people with kids that just been desperate to get back to the office. <laughs> All right. well, I, was, I was actually thinking when you were talking, Nikki, I did a, an article earlier this week uh, about the, uh, the AMWA 200 uh, study. And one of the interesting things about that is that one of the things the study revealed was this, the second 100 revenue law firms were much less interested in reducing their real estate footprint than the AMWAL 100 top 100 law firms were, which I thought was kind of kind of interesting too. Uh, so, in, in addition to the generational uh, uh, and and uh, diversity issues with respect to going back to the office, also is kind of this firm size kind of discrepancy or I wonder if there's well, a I wonder if there's a conflation that some of the AMLA 100s are already pricier real estate than the uh, 200s so the 200s are already in cheaper cheaper square footage and they don't feel the the pinch that some of those 100s I don't know that, uh, I don't know about I, that. I love no, every says, time you talk about real estate like you always bring up the real estate stuff on here and I find it fascinating like I love I need to get into the same real estate sources you do because I I love that stuff <laughs> like that's what I find really interesting about offices what I what I don't get is the dichotomy so you've got some firms uh, yeah. talking well, about you know, it, 25 to 40 percent of their space they're going to whack uh, and then I look at that and say okay so now you're talking about Kind of the haves, those that are back in the office, the have-nots that are not in the office. And when you're talking about the senior people who are more willing to go down the hall than to start a Teams or a Zoom session, how do, how do you get your culture to adjust to 40% of your office space being whacked? I, I see that as a dichotomy that, you know, unless you're talking about getting rid of 40% of your office space over the course of a 10-year lease or something, that might line up with law firm cultural change dynamics. But it really kind of sounded like, you know, the 40% chop was going to come down in, in fairly short order. And I don't see how culture of many firms is going to catch up and match that. Uh, and how they're going to make sure that the people who aren't in the office, like for the young ones, they get the adequate exposure and training and just the work like we all know like what most of us have practiced and actually there's a lot to do with just being there <laughs> I think that's why I got any work just because I happened to be there <laughs> but um and you know and, and if you've got so if you've got a trainee or whoever young associate who's in the office they're almost certainly going to get more work than somebody who's at home so they're going to need to think really carefully about 
really being really organized I think in terms of who comes in when and doing it in I don't know they're going to be really need to be very systematic and very organized I don't think it's going to work at all if it's haphazard yep um one of the uh hottest stories in legal tech this week is one probably very few people here have heard anything about because it's happening uh on the other side of the world uh but uh, Molly you want to tell us about that Sure. So um, I'm, I'm I started to get down a little bit of a rabbit hole with this uh, after um, reading Doug Austin's <laughs> piece on eDiscovery Today about Nuix um, and how at first I read the headline. I'm like, oh, what's happening with Nuix? So some, the Australian press is paying more attention to their IPO. And I'm like, oh, it's because it's a major scandal. <laughs> so, and the, the Sydney Morning Herald and the, their uh, uh, three other or two other publications have done this big investigative piece into Nuix and its IPO and its management and it's um, the today uh, the papers reported that um, their co the one of the co-founders and and um, past chairman has been has uh, been severed from the company completely um, as of today and the Australian Federal Police are investigating um, the IPO and um, his uh, his eighty million dollar windfall uh, when when it was offered in in December. So um, fascinating, and um, I, I'm tr I was trying to understand why it hasn't gotten any attention because a lot of huge companies use um, Nuix. It's a it's it's a, a great product from what I keep hearing, um, but it they also. So the Sydney paper this morning said that they were losing up to the IPO, their churn was 35% for staffing and 30% on their engineering side. So that's that goes to product integrity for sure, from my perspective. Um, and that's apparently why there's, you know, um, a more more investigation and attention. And I, I wondered if maybe the reason we haven't seen much about it is because it really wasn't critical of the, the reporting so far had been more critical about the reporting and the um, financial management within the company and not the product itself. Um, but now this is starting to kind of reveal some uh, potential issues with, with product development, at least in the, the coverage that I saw today. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, as you say, it, it has implications, it was significant implications here in the United States. Uh, I, I actually hadn't, I was completely unaware of it until I read Doug's piece. Uh, uh, it was just yesterday or something. I think he posted about it, or maybe even just today. Uh, Jeff, have you seen, I mean, you're scanning a lot of sources all the time. Have you seen anything about this? Or were you I, I have not seen it show up either. Like as I said, Doug's was the uh, first, I got it the same time you all did uh, in my Pinhawk feeds. It's, that's really the only story happening. Yeah. So Molly, we're, we're all going to write about Nuix next week. Thanks. To <laughs> well, it's a, it's a really complicated story. Like it's you you can kind of to play catch up. You can go look through all the Sydney Morning Herald pieces, but there it's an in depth investigation into 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 this. And you know they've been covering some of the um, some of these issues much more closely. Um, people who look like related like related issues to Nuix, but not necessarily company related that are now being tied in um, to the oper general operations, which is, which will be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I'll but just I was, wait, I'll I wait and mostly... see if Caroline writes about it and then I'll write about it. I'll copy her article. <laughs> Seriously. 
<laughs> so who's first? So it depends on like what side, where the company is, who writes about it first, and then the then everybody else. <laughs> no, no, no. Or Joe, she, she, Joe takes a rant. He'll do a rant first, and then like, how does this no, work? I, What's no, the I, 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 All I was gonna say is that perhaps perhaps Newix needed a plan uh, before they did all this. I, I'm looking forward to his <laughs> mea culpa in a few days where he's Here, sitting I down going like, I wish. The real estate angle. Yeah, yeah I know. No, Caroline scooped us all on the net document story this week. That was good. I don't know. <laughs> That's how I learned about it. I got up and I read Caroline's stuff. I said, oh, shit, what happened? <laughs> yeah, that, so yeah, I found out. Um, yes, so so I found out before anyone really wanted was keen to talk about it. <laughs> and they were a bit like, oh, you, we really hate you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so obviously they got um, uh, they got acquired. So Clear Lake sold out so um to uh Warburg Pincus um so and uh clearly to be honest it was a they they've been in they've been uh, they've part, uh, they've owned it with um Cove Hill bought, another fund bought in in uh, 2019 bit of confusion to be honest with you over that because um Cove Hill was reported to be a minority stakeholder and apparently haven't changed the state but now apparently they're equal shareholders with Warburg Pincus so my maths isn't really super good, but I, I was a bit confused by that. I don't quite know what happened there, but um, but yeah, so they've... Um, and the, and One the, thing um, I was wondering is whether the leadership took a, a greater stake somehow, because uh, mm. when I talked to the CEO after reading your story, uh, I, I mean, he kept emphasizing that we were sort of co-equal partners, the leadership yeah. and the two investors, and I don't know. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, because they, they said to, that there's a lot of... Um, the, the leadership have I don't know what the stake is but they so right. as far as I was aware Cove Hill hadn't changed its stake I don't know I was right. told I was told not to make too much of it and, but right. um so but yeah so they um but they valued I I heard and the CEO wouldn't confirm or even even speak any words about it but um that <laughs> I said oh is it true that you've been valued at 1.4 billion um which I heard on pretty good authority or I wouldn't have written it um and I mean that is such a huge number and it's even when you, you know this isn't my strong point but when you look through previous I don't know it just seems like the, the it, says, it says to me that um the market is so frothy uh, uh, part, part, that's part of my conclusion um but it also says you know they're doing really well and one I suppose one of the other things is that they you know they so they're sort of moving to more towards volume small medium firms and you know seemingly doing really well growing really fast they've grown 25 percent year on year um if i was so it's just quite curious as to where that leaves the really big firms like that are some of them still to go live like hogan levels etc yeah yeah well you'll, you'll be glad to know i got on i got on the interview with josh baxter and I, he said well what do you want to know i said i just want to know what did caroline get wrong <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> the thing I thought was so interesting is that documents has been around a long time. They were doing cloud computing before <clears throat> cloud computing was even a thing. That's yeah. sort of one of the things that they talk about. when 20 years, doing... right? Yeah. No, no, that's so, not yeah. true. Uh, Atrium invented cloud computing. <laughs> I don't understand how you've not caught this. <laughs> but it's interesting. Actually, that... NetDocuments is the only true SaaS solution. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and they're doing really well because of that. people are working out, you know, that, that especially the smaller firms that are more comfortable with SaaS, you know, um, 
I think, and they, you know, they've, they've <clears throat> built some really nice sort of collab, their collab spaces stuff. And they do, you know, I think they do some really cool stuff. I think they find, they're kind of finding their market perhaps, you know, and there's a big market, a huge untapped market of firms that are looking for an all singing or dan dancing SaaS product like NetDocuments. Yeah. Well, they're, they're another one. Uh, uh, many, it seems like a number of legal tech companies these days are all saying they want to be the sale, the sales force of, of law and, yeah. and uh, they I know are that yet too. another one. Uh, but uh, maybe one of them will actually emerge as, as being that. I don't know. Uh, and then, you know, another company like with a huge disruption. valuation is Relativity, which is like a three, isn't it like a 3.6 or something, $3.4 billion valuation. And they made another big acquisition this week uh, with Text IQ and possibly yeah. building out and expanding their, their uh, AI capabilities with that. So uh, it's a crazy market. It's crazy. Those are the yeah. things that they love though. We're going to disrupt the legal space and become the sales force of law. So I'm just going to create a deck and just say that, and I'm going to right. see what I get. I may not have to right. do this anymore because I'm going to get a couple yep. million and reinvent. The, <laughs> it has to be at least wheel. ten flies, Nikki. So, so Nikki, you you put together that deck, and I'll be the bro on it, and I'll just like go in and go like, <laughs> we just invented legal research. We're gonna have a database of cases. It's gonna be Many great. Founders have actually done that. They've created fake male founders or else hired someone to go and do the deck presentation around Silicon Valley and it works really well, but it's super sad that that actually we're, is an effective technique. We're going to call it East law. We invented legal research. It's going to be great. I think we should, <laughs> we should say we invented the scales of justice and go from there. The turbo tax of the Salesforce of law. <laughs> That's even better. Yeah. <laughs> Molly last week was talking about that. We were talking that about last, last week about how companies, uh, you know, well, with regard to Joe's story about AI last week, about how you're either, you know, some companies aren't specific enough about what they do, but, but maybe there's something to be said for not being too specific as well. Uh, all right. Well, good in the order. Anything else anybody wanted to bring up or any rants or raves or complaints or cheers or anything? Are you wearing a Bellagio jacket? I am. Okay. Not that, not that, <laughs> not that I would normally. Well, I normally wear it a lot, but not that I would have ever paid for it. I would put it that way. I was, I was. I don't assume conference. casino gear is not. Yeah, I assume well, casino gear is something you get, not that you pay for. <laughs> I was at a conference one year at the Bellagio. What was it? Probably some Thomson Reuters thing or something. I can't remember what it was, but uh, it happened to be my birthday. And some people found out and got together and ran down to the gift store <laughs> at the Bellagio and bought me this nice little Nike. It's a great little thing, except for, I, if I could pull the stitching out of it, I would. But uh, you, can thought, use Bob, black, you can use a black you, pen. I could use a black yeah, pen. And, yeah. I thought you were just trying to rub it in. That That's what I was going to say. got an invite to a certain I mean, clearly. in Las Vegas. That no, no, no. <laughs> you beat me I, did wear it. I did wear it to the Bellagio on Lake Como and, and I got a lot of looks uh, when I was there too, which is a totally different. Uh... People started asking you to carry the luggage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think uh... you just came up with another technique though. If we go on your birthday to do the slide jack, Joe, because it's my yeah. birthday and they may just throw money at you because it's your birthday. Yeah, probably get 20 million, technique. double the money. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, good. Well, I hope uh, despite the rainy weather in some parts of the world, uh, and uh, you don't have, do you have a long weekend, Caroline? What's, you don't have, you don't have oh, Memorial Day, of course. But. We do, no, we have a long weekend too. And actually I've got next, some of the next week off, which is great because the kids are all on half term. 
Yes, right. unusual for us to have the holiday in the same time. So you're not going to be with us next Friday? I may, I may because I don't, I, when I say holiday, let's not overplay this too much. I'm just taking, I'm taking a couple of days outside of my house. It's not right. actually like a proper holiday. You're taking liberties with the term. Oh, literally, I'm just going to go somewhere and it's not here for three days. All right. All right. Well, everybody have a great weekend and we'll see you back here next Friday. Thanks to everybody for watching and listening. Thanks, guys. Bye all. Bye all. Take care.